0: Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our DevLife series.
1: Hello, and welcome. Today on Codish, we have two great guests to help us discuss a topic. That I think is more important than our society generally allows it to be. Our guests are Dr. Muriel Rees, a practicing clinical psychologist, and Adam Stokowiak, founder and editor-in-chief of uh, The Changelog, co-host of Brain Science Podcasts, And as you may have guessed from that, we're going to talk about mental health. And it's maybe even a more important topic amidst the kind of more necessary solitude that we're uh, being forced to um, or, or being asked to or, or required to to be in these days with the COVID-19 pandemic. But, you know, solitude and other and, uh, forced solitude or forced family confinement can have, you know, effects on thoughts and feelings and the way we interact with others. So anyway, this episode's going to have two parts. The first part... We're going to talk about the stigma associated with mental health. Um, the the stigma kind of perpetuated maybe by daily media consumption, by family members, um, kind of complex relationships you might have, but even by yourself, like your own your own thoughts and, and feelings. And then part two is going to be all about. Working on mental health, like more practical um, tips and tricks, um, both you know, just from personal experience that we'll share, um, but validated and uh, hopefully validated and um, critiqued by um, our scientists that we have here. So yeah, let's let's jump in. Uh, first, we'll say hello to our guests. Mira, you want to say hi and introduce yourself a little bit.
2: Hello, hello. Yes, I'm, my name is Dr. Marielle Reese. Um, like Chris said, I'm a psychologist. I operate out of the fabulous Pacific Northwest. I've been working in clinical practice for over 10 years. But prior to that, I spent a number of years specializing in brain injury, both the treatment and rehabilitation of individuals with sort of developmental disorders, disabilities, as well as people who you know, had different brain injuries, so be it stroke or traumatic brain injury. And really helping people get back to work. And so I loved that exposure and experience clinically because it really sort of enhanced all of the other foundational knowledge and skills I had from graduate school and gave me so much more of a repertoire and curiosity about sort of what drives some of the challenges that people struggle with. And also, recognizing the difference between sort of what testing might say people are capable of and then functionally what that looked like. Because just because somebody might have a certain degree of memory impairment or their brain wasn't working, language skills, et cetera, um, there was ways that we could help them learn how to compensate for that. And I think that's what all of us are looking for relative to mental health as a broad stroke to say, you know, there's skills and strategies we can all learn and, and we don't have to be subjected to feeling a way in which we don't want to feel like we actually have some degree of agency around doing things that help move us in one direction or another.
1: Yeah. Compensate for something and agency. Two things I'd love to chat about more, but I want to let Adam introduce himself first.
0: Well, that's exactly what we do this show, Chris, is to, is to employ those things because we feel that, as you had said in the intro, that mental health has this stigma, and part of the reason why we do this show, because I'm just somebody who's curious. I don't have a doctorate. I've never really studied this in any academic way, but you know, I am the founder and editor-in-chief of Changelog, and we have awesome podcasts primarily focused around software development, dev culture, open source, artificial intelligence, yeah. the web front end. So like having a show called Brain Science is kind of like an outlier for us. But yeah. you know, that's the problem, right? Is that we need to have a show like this that helps people to understand. These different aspects of mental health, you know, being a better human, like we'd like to say a lot, you know, things like habit formation, being a better team member, playing a better role in a team, you know, all these different things play into our lives, both professionally and personally. And we felt that there was a lot to talk about around mental health and particularly how we can take what we know about the brain and apply it to bettering our lives. And that's the crux of our show and absolutely why we produce it. So I'm just somebody who's curious, who happened to know Marielle through other connections. And I was like, Hey, we really should do a podcast talking
1: about brain science and all these fun things and just geek out. Yeah. We'll link to the, the, uh, the brain science podcast in the show notes. I think, you know, for me, like discussing something that's difficult helps me get by it or helps me resolve it. Um, instead of going, going at something being like, okay, how do I fix this problem? You know, like I'm, I'm a software engineer kind of have a science, uh, and math background. And so I'm always like, very objectively, like, how do I fix this problem and try to like go kind of head on at it. But in my older years, maybe I figured out that or learned that it's sometimes more helpful just to step back and discuss it um, and to kind of force it in that you have to have a discussion about it um, or, or even writing about it, you know, in your journal or whatever, but not force it in that, like, I must solve it, like, within the next hour or in the next day or something like that.
2: You know, we all encounter challenges throughout our lives. Like, I think that was in one of our primary episodes. Like, we we all struggle. Our struggles aren't going to look the same, but we struggle nonetheless. And so if we approach things with sort of wanting to to just throw that away like trash, I don't want to struggle and I just want to fix it. It's very much like differentiating between trash so throwing something in the trash versus composting mm. right i can't throw my trash away and expect it to become fertilizer it actually has to be exposed to other chemical processes in order to allow a transformation to occur that then allows for other things to grow from that fertilizer yeah and that's what you're getting at chris of going when i talk about it it gives me an opportunity to sort of categorize it, make sense of it, exchange, expose it to oxygen. So I'm not holding it or containing it all within myself, but actually exchanging and upsetting that homeostasis internally to prompt some other changes.
1: Yeah. Why does this stigma exist? Why do you think people are hesitant to talk about mental health, you know, whether it's their own personal mental health or generally um, as as something that's, you know, maybe more important uh, or important in society? Like, Why are we hesitant and why have we always been hesitant, we being like society, to talk about mental health?
2: Well, I think in general, sort of people have long time seen it as sort of a weakness, right? Like if my brain isn't working the way that I think it ought to, then that shows that one, there might be something wrong with me. And then if I think that there's something wrong, why in the world would I tell somebody else that there's something wrong with me? Right, it's like exposing my my dirty laundry, so to speak. <laughs> and Brene Brown, who's a social worker, or once upon a time was a social worker at the University of Houston, talks about aspects of vulnerability and connection. And I would say that that also is a significant component of that stigma of going. If I attest to having challenges mentally, maybe I I really feel like it's putting myself out there and being vulnerable exposing myself literally to judgment, criticism, or God forbid, condemnation.
0: It's also very personal too, right? Having something wrong with you mentally is not something that you can go in and fix. Unlike say a broken bone, or maybe a skill you can learn, like it's something that's sort of out of your control and very personal. So it's sort of inherent that you would take it very personally, and then as Mary Eld said, like putting yourself out there and being vulnerable, that's leading to disconnection which we will talk about and have talked about in our show, is that connection is really the resolve of many things that can go wrong. So if you are isolated, you're less connected with other people, so you're less open to opportunity, change, free mind, etc. and you essentially begin to detract and retract rather than, like, I suppose, puff up, get bigger, take up more space, yeah, and connect with more people because we are social beings, and being antisocial leads to a lot of these things, essentially. And it's a stigma because it's very personal and yeah, leads to potentially rejection. And nobody wants that.
2: Yeah. And Adam, I'm glad you brought that up because the rejection is a significant part. Like, and here's a little nugget that I think is so fascinating. But when we're rejected socially, the actual physical pain centers of our brain are the first things to light up when they look at things under MRIs. So like it legit hurts. And so it's a really big deal and I would say especially nowadays with the pandemic when we are more isolated socially and then you add any sort of rejection or struggle on top of it it's just automatic deflation to some degree.
1: The pain is real essentially. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's
1: interesting. I don't think of, I never thought about it that way or I don't think about it that way. I think of kind of like you were saying Adam like um let's say I break a finger, right? That doesn't define me. It's not like this inherent thing that's part of me. And I know that like, Oh, I can put a splint on it or I can go to the doctor. They pull on it. They like, you know, realign it or whatever. And it will heal over time. But mental health is different, right? It's, it's like it defines my personality or my character. If there's something wrong in there, if I, or if something's broken in there, like I break, I have a broken bone in my head, but then it also doesn't just heal automatically, right? It doesn't heal in the same way that the broken finger does.
2: Yeah. So, it's Chris, you're getting at sort of how it is in a quick fix, right? Like you can't sort of step in and have a doctor be like, it's casted. Come back six weeks. We'll take it off. And then you'll do rehab and you're good to go. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but there's actually insight as part of what's required to be able to change. And if I don't know, which is where a lot of people get to. Right? Like I don't know why I'm depressed or I don't like a lot of people anxiety like there isn't anything that I should be anxious about. And yet physiologically, my body and my brain are like amped and always sort of ready to go as if there's some active threat in front of me.
0: What you're saying though, Chris, about defining though yeah, and describing, I think is pretty important. I think the reason the stigma exists is because people feel as though their mental health or the things they feel are wrong with them or maybe really are wrong with them define them and not describe them. So right. I would say the stigma is that it describes something that may be challenging for you or different than you than say common human beings or the default design of human beings or whatever, however you want to describe it. But it doesn't define you because human beings are very capable and very resilient despite challenges. Yeah. And so while it may be a mental health issue, it shouldn't define you. And there's obvious cases where that, Mariel may push back and that that's really true, because there are true mental health challenges that will define you. But my encouragement is that, uh, and this is from the curious person, not the one with the doctorate, that it describes you, not defines you.
2: So with that tagging on, it's sort of differentiating between who you are versus what you do. And so if you confuse the who and the do, Mm -hmm. it makes it all the more challenging, right? Because I don't think I interpret that there's something necessarily defective with me if I broke my finger I mean maybe if I did something silly or foolish but it's not gonna likely prompt feelings of shame right like something with my mental health which is like that's me it's my brain and you know if there wasn't some externally imposed injury then who else do I have to look at but me
1: yeah I guess yeah one thing I think associated with that stigma is is that it sometimes seems like I don't know how to fix this thing. Or, you know, there's maybe the first step of like, is there something there that I'm ignoring? Like, is there a problem, anxiety, depression, whatever that I'm kind of ignoring or just sweeping under the rug? And then second, there's like, okay, I kind of think there's something there, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to find a therapist or talk to a therapist. Like, it just seems like a, an insurmountable problem or, or there's like, Not enough kind of common knowledge maybe out there that's taught in schools or whatever it is to give people the skills to like understand that, hey, there are steps you can do here. And, hey, you are not you are not unique. Like other people experience very similar things.
2: Well, right. I mean, I think it's like it's normalized if it's a medical doctor. Right. If you're having physical issues, you're like, what? And in general conversation. Right. You go, well, I called my I was having this trouble and I called my doctor and I saw my doctor Mm -hmm. like nobody's going to think anything of that. Right. However, if I were to say, well, I've been having these trouble with my thoughts. You know, I keep like telling myself really wretched, horrible things.
1: Yeah. Right.
2: Those aren't usual conversations. And then it's not followed up by. And so I'm going to go see, you know, my head doctor or think of all of the names people use to reference right. my profession.
1: Yeah, totally. Very, very like derogatory or uh, kind of diminishing names. Maybe. Yeah,
0: the pathway to to find that therapist is difficult. And then attach that stigma also to having to be vulnerable with another human being. So mm. the the processing of whatever it is you're thinking, that process to actually process those thoughts and to examine them requires connection with another human that does require some vulnerability. It takes effort and intention. Like I've got to find some resource that has a phone number or some credential that I have no idea. What's a side D? I don't know what a side D is. You know, I don't know what these things are like. I'm just intimidated. And now I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to skip it. I'm done. I'm not going to do it. Yeah.
2: Well, sure. Because too, at some point you have to admit sort of, I don't have the tools or skills or repertoire of knowledge in order to resolve it on my own. I mean, so people will read self-help books or sort of investigate on their own, which is good. But, you know, one of the the challenges when people get to the point of looking for therapy or help is access. One, I don't know these different degrees, which there are a number of different ones. And that just really indicates sort of level of education or specialty of focus. For example, a licensed marriage and family therapist their sort of framework for education is around families and marriages so that sort of for lack of a better way to say it a a bias or the sort of mental construct that they sort of approach the people with that they're working with whereas you know a clinical psychologist so someone with a PhD or a PSY, PsyD has you know done five or more years of school And just has a broader sense of clinical skill and experiences because they've spent more time and been exposed to more things. That being said, you know, if you don't have either the funds to cover the cost, you know, or insurance to assist with that, it's going, how do I find that person and who's going to be the most helpful to me? And the beautiful thing that research has found is that like none of the degrees actually matter.
1: Woohoo! <laughs> really? Okay.
2: Yeah, it it really isn't about that. That what contributes to the effect is the relationship, because fundamentally, are you going to listen to somebody you don't like?
1: Mm-hmm. True.
2: Probably not.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and and so there's like another layer there. I think below that, where I've like when I did some um, find a therapist research, where there was like. CBT cognitive behavioral yep. therapy there was like existential therapy, like humanistic there like I can't even remember all these different types. Yep. I was like, what is this huge world and how do I choose one of these?
2: And again, all of those things are great. They're different styles or tools in clinicians' toolkit. but at the end of the day they aren't really what contributes to the change that happens in therapy that it's about the relationship that you have with the therapist mm-hmm. and so there's certain ones like um yeah cbt or cognitive behavioral therapy is sort of short-term focused it's teaching and training you a skill around challenging your thoughts and recognizing sort of events um, or internal triggers that you can then navigate differently with just an alternative thought pattern or different behavioral skills opposed to EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, because everyone likes to say that often, (laughs) (laughs) right? But EMDR is a fantastic sort of therapeutic orientation in that it really helps people with trauma and has been well um, verified through research that people can have significant improvement in their symptoms quickly, which is the allure of that sort of thing. But this is also why I'd like to have the conversations on the podcast, because If people don't know and they don't sort of learn that there's routes or avenues that they can get the help, it's just one more barrier, which further enhances the stigma. So if I'm struggling, I don't know where to go. And then I do try to go. And then it implodes in my face. And that, I mean, none of that is reinforcing to continue to seek help.
1: There's like a, a lack of a map, so to speak. Yeah, totally. I I want like a flowchart, right? A decision tree of like, do this. Do you feel this thing? Okay. Maybe, you know, think about this, but then maybe to your point, Muriel, like maybe ultimately a lot of those things don't matter. I mean, there probably is something worth like, like CBT you said was kind of more near term or short term focused. And then there's EMDR is like maybe better if you, um, you know, have like uh, past traumas that you're trying to work through. Um, yeah, but so yeah. flowchart
2: of yeah. like, how do I do or, or what do I do? And um, I always encourage people in sort of looking at the resources they do have. For example, most uh, insurance companies, if you're here in the U.S., at least this is true, that you can call them up and they keep a list of sort of credentialed providers who you can say hey I'm struggling with anxiety or I'm struggling with depression mm-hmm. like anyone who's panelled that the with that insurance company has a list of what people in their area actually do. Yep. And so there's one step and then that famous thing called the internet <laughs> go sort of cross reference see if they're out there if you can find any other information because you know again do you feel like they're relatable? Like if you're struggling with, you know, an issue, do you feel like this person has a sense of understanding? Yep. And then you can try more than one and say, hey, I want to show up. I want to see what this is like, you know, and go, do I feel like I'm getting the benefit that I want? Some people have experiences, you know, in sort of reaching out and, you know, that sort of infamous statement that many people in the mental health field say, like, how does that make you feel? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And while that's significant, that isn't the entirety of what the therapeutic process should look like and going, are you building skills or changing behavior in the direction that you want to go? And, you know, ideally, they're just like crutches for the broken leg. (laughs) You would use them for a time for additional support while healing can transpire so that you don't need them in the same way in the future.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm glad you said that, Mary, because that's, that's applicable. I was going to ask about bias confirmation. Because sometimes you had said, did you get what you wanted out of the therapy? And sometimes that might be not what you really needed. Wanted and needed maybe <laughs> different things. So how do you yeah. prevent or maybe avoid bias confirmation? I mean, would it be going too deep to talk about what, I guess, maybe a first few visits might be like? Or not so much what you'd go through, but... How many visits should you see of a therapist before you sort of say, I want to keep continuing, whether it's monetary or not, or if it's like getting that kind of resolve back from that person, that connection? Like, how do they know?
2: Well, I think it's not a set number, but like usually sort of you show up an initial appointment is sort of throwing up everything sort of (laughs) so that the person has a sense of who you are, where you've come from and what exactly you're struggling with. A key part is going, does it feel collaborative? You know, I always say that, like, I might have expertise, but you're the expert on you. And so unless we can work together, like, this isn't going to really be fruitful in the same sort of way. So you should be participating and going, you know, does it resonate with me when my therapist responds? Does it feel like it fits or they just keep saying, like, wow, that must make you feel sad.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't know if this is true with other people, but I kind of have like a. I tend to be reserved in, in my kind of emotions, but at some point, like this dam will break or this like trigger will happen. And I'll just start five minutes later. I'm like, Oh wait, I just kind of accessed all these things that I didn't know were in there, but also shared them with you. It kind of feels good. But I think that that is like, that's the vulnerability that like maybe we were talking about earlier. It's like um, I hold back from it. And, and so I, I need someone who somehow like breaks that dam or, or, or tricks me into like throwing <laughs> up on you. Right.
0: <laughs> well, here's the encouragement, those listening and even you, Chris, there's a bunch of Muriel's out there. Yeah. And I think the hard part is that the other side of what you need, if you're, if you need therapy or you want to seek therapy like this, is that they're a person too, right? And as Muriel said, it's about a relationship. and, and There's another side of that, too, where Mary can talk about from her perspective on the fact of collaboration, that she wants to work with people that want to change, right? That collaboration. If you can't share your story or what you're dealing with, then she can't help you, and she wants to help people. And there's other Muriels out there. Why I say that is to give people hope. So when you challenge yourself or encounter the stigma, know that there's people like her out there that do want to help you and are invested,
2: Yeah. And, you know, it it is hard. I mean, because it's very much like, and I think this is a really significant point in going what sort of keeps people from pursuing the changes is pain. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's painful to be depressed or struggle with anxiety or trauma or any of these things, but it's also painful to try to walk through it. And one of the things that is so important when you look at going, what does sort of feeling better, getting better look like is differentiating pain. I don't want a blanket file for pain. I mean, even I think about this a lot just in terms of my background and being in athletics as a kid and to be able to talk through with my coaches or my parents about like, is it a sharp shooting pain? Is it a dull ache? Like, what is your experience? But I think about it going now when I exercise, if I'm having trouble breathing, you know, I don't call my doctor. Because I think I'm having a heart attack, unless maybe I have tightness in my chest and my left arm is like going numb or (laughs) shooting pains down it, right? But so I have to learn how to talk back to my brain and sort of go, I know this is aversive. I know this doesn't feel good. But this will sort of produce a harvest if you can endure or tolerate some of the pain that comes along with it. And that's critical. And so within even the therapeutic context, like there should be skills taught in terms of like, how do I manage it when I get upset or activated or anxious? Like what what, you mean, there's things I can actually do. I don't have to just keep having panic attacks. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's, that's something else I kind of wanted to talk about the harvest, I guess, is um, when you break a finger, you're like, oh, that hurts. I want that to get better. I can see the problem. Like it's pointing the wrong way or something. Right. Um, But I think very often from personal experience, like in mental health, sometimes the, you can't see the brighter side. You can't see the, like, what would it be like if I actually did work on this thing or did talk to someone or did, I don't know, my daily mindfulness practice or something like that. How would it help my life, my relationships, my whatever? Do either of you have anything to share for like, either that you've, experience personally? What are those benefits or you've seen, you know, in your your work, Mariel?
2: I think one of the key things, and Adam and I have talked about this relative to even habit formation and going, there has to be some immediate sort of payout. I think repetition with the payout. I mean, why do we sort of continue to exercise when we can't breathe and our muscles burn and want to give out? It's because we have some other goal that we're trying to achieve. And so, you know, I think when people are really struggling with managing their mental health it's really hard for them to hold on to a hope of anything how other than how they feel at that moment and that's why going you know having a therapist and this is why too i actually encourage when i give resources to patients a lot of times i'll encourage them to listen to books via audio mm-hmm. so that they don't hear it in their voice but rather another voice
1: interesting yeah
2: so that they're practicing you know, reframing and getting hope in a different sort of way. I mean, one of the best ways I heard it said with someone who is really struggling was going, you know what? I know this is so hard and it's so hard for you to imagine anything other than what you're feeling right now, but I do know that it can be different. And so if you can borrow my hope Mm. to take you to the next step, it's part of facilitating that trust in the relationship that like I know that this is like a marathon and you feel like you're on mile 1 and I'm like just run 25 more miles. Come on. Yeah. Which is the feedback you might get from other people. Right. <laughs> but going, you know what? Like you're not going to do it by yourself and like I'm going to help you along and cheerlead you and go like, "You know, that sucked. That was so painful and you know what? Good for you. You you hung in there amidst the suck." Good on you. And so then that becomes the reinforcement, which leads to the harvest.
1: Hmm.
0: What about the future you, though? The future you would, you know, if, if you can sort of future cast this, and in my experience, this is the case. Like, whenever I'm in those scenarios where I don't get that help or I'm in that pain that you are talking about, and I just sort of like stay there versus get the help or resolve the problem, the future me is like, this problem solved, and now you're moving on to it. But th- thinking more so that, that feeling like you wish you had done it sooner you know imagine the future <laughs> like this is no longer an issue i've busted through the boundary i've resolved this issue or i've got a relationship helping me process these thoughts feelings etc and that it can be better but future use like just get here cuz you wish you had done it sooner and that's kind of how i've been in different scenarios where i've procrastinated with dealing with certain things is when i get to the moment i desire to get to i tell myself man, I really wish you'd have done this sooner because this is the joy and the the feeling you get there. When you get there, you feel this, but that old person, the person that's sort of stuck in it, can't see it. And so I like your aspect, Mary, where you say, borrow that hope because that's what a lot of us need is like we need to borrow somebody else's hope. And that's the whole point of uh, is empathy and compassion is like, that's what it is, right? You've got somebody else who cares and helps you walk through it.
2: And I think with that, Adam, it pulls us right back to like, what is the actual stigma? And it's the fear that if I reach out, I'm not gonna be met with empathy and compassion, but I'm gonna be met with judgment and criticism that goes, Mm. yeah, you know, those horrible thoughts you think about you and sort of that you're not enough, guess what, they're true because you have Joe Schmo and Betty Sue telling you and confirming your own bias internally and then it's defeated.
1: What about there's this like <laughs> quirky, I think it was like a comedy drama TV show called Limitless. Um, have you ever heard of this?
0: I've seen the movie. If I'm re- referencing the same one. As- it's
1: it's the same as the movie. The idea is like there's this pill that you take and it's um like this mentally enhancing pill that, that lets you be better at work, like focus on things better, like do math in your head, like understand, like see everything around you, have perfect situational awareness. I'm just using that as an example of like, I, I know that when I have... Uh, continued with or been consistent with my like mental health habits, whether that's speaking with someone about stuff or exercise or meditation, whatever it is. Um, I feel, you know, not a thousand percent amazing like that, that pill that show talks about, but like, I feel like I'm a better employee. Like I can do better at my job. I'm a better partner in a, in a relationship. Well, that's the key there. The magic pill
0: then is connection. Because yeah. usually when you're isolated is when you're probably feeling those. And maybe, you know, go back to your own journal or share here, even like I would imagine. And just by assumption that when you're feeling that you're less connected with others that care about you and you care about them.
2: Yeah. I mean, connection is one part. But I mean, to some degree, we're all a little dense when it comes to sort of emotion and memory. It's all part of the same system. So if you can think of emotion sort of hijacking your ability to retrieve data from your memory bank that's part of what happens. And so our feelings in general can run interference with just our overall processing. So imagine I'm just stuck sort of seeing really far and narrow as opposed to, you know, panoramic view. That changes what I believe there's access to or around so that I think I could move or maneuver. With that, we want to practice doing things. I mean, because of straight conditioning, I'm better able to recall when I've done it so often, Mm. that I'm like, I know this pays. I know that every time I exercise, I don't feel better before I do it. (laughs) I feel better after, and I'm always glad I did. And so when you're really struggling and like it just feels hard, just move one degree in the direction you wanna go. Mm. If exercise is hard, 90 seconds. Can you jump, do something, walk, 90 seconds. Like make it so easy that you're like, (laughs) I could do that in my sleep Yeah, because that's how you sort of span the chasm that feels so overwhelming because usually there's a degree of sort of self imposition of expectations that say, if you're really going to do it, it only counts if you do it like this.
1: Yeah. That like resonates with me or maybe the perfectionist tendencies that I have. I'm like perfection is like spanning this chasm and getting the other side. But what I need to actually do, to get there is take one step, right? Like to, um, you said compensate earlier, which I Mm -hmm. thought was an interesting word in your intro. And I like that word because it's like compensate doesn't imply like a perfect fix for whatever the the thing is. It's like, I'm just trying to mitigate the effects. I'm trying to get a little bit better.
2: Yeah. And so, and then it's reinforcing because it instills confidence. Mm. Like it was hard and I did it anyway. So in the same way, if you're lifting weights and going, it's too heavy. I'm going to drop the weight and then I can keep going as opposed to like, forget it. I'm just not meant to work out. Right. Like we just like roll down this snowball hill of sort of ways in which we fall short of the expectation, which in no way is motivating for any of us to be like, oh, yeah, let's go do that again.
1: Well, that's it for part one of two of our mini series on mental health. Join us next week for part two during which we'll get a bit more hands-on and practical in this fascinating topic.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.